It's the Religious Studies Project. It is now Monday, the 13th of May. Or you might be listening to this at some point way, 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 way in the future. And this could be some sort of strange artifact from a previous civilization that no longer exists. Indeed. Uh, um, it, it, it's not the 13th when we're saying this. It's probably not the 13th when you're listening. But in some abstract sense, this is the episode for the 13th of May. It is. That voice belongs to David Robertson. Uh, my voice belongs to me. And David has been speaking with um, Presuming, Ma- presuming that we're still alive in this uh, model, given that c- civilization's gone and all that's left is these recordings. The voice maybe doesn't belong to us anymore if we don't exist. This interview is with me and Matthew Hayes. On oh. Buddhism in the Critical Classroom. Take it away, David. Well, I'm pleased to be speaking today to Matthew Hayes, uh, who is a research student at UCLA, that's the University of California in Los Angeles. Welcome to the RSP, Matthew. David, thank you very much. Very happy to be speaking with you. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. Um, You got in contact with what I think is a really interesting topic, something very RSP, combining our loves of pedagogy and critical theory. And you wanted to talk about Mm. critical pedagogy um, in teaching non-Western religions. Um, hmm. so maybe we could kick off just a little bit of context uh, as to who you are and what you do, and then we can get into talking about the course and the specific kind of exercises and stuff that you do. Sure, sure. <clears throat> yeah, so my um, research kind of broadly is centered on uh, Buddhist ritual practice during the early modern period in uh, Japan, which runs from uh, 1603 to uh, 1868. And um, I'm interested really in issues of uh, ritual knowledge production and transmission, uh, the formation and sort of disillusion also of social groups uh, in this context. Um, I focus on a genre of devotional liturgy called koshiki. Uh, and my dissertation actually takes a look, a fairly narrow look at one specific Koshiki, written by a uh, medieval monk named Kakuban. Uh, and the research really traces later performative, uh, editorial, and even pedagogical uh, iterations of this Koshiki, and uh, really argues that these iterations served as kind of vectors for the transmission of religious uh, knowledge at a specific temple called Chishakuin in uh, Kyoto during the 17th century or late 17th century. So, my research is really a kind of mix, I suppose, of uh, kind of an institutional study. It's a textual study. It's a social study. Uh, it's a ritual study. Uh, so it's a kind of uh, hybrid uh, project in that way. It's quite a, a good technique, I think, actually doing that sort of critical reading of changing mm. text. It's uh, it could be very enlightening as to the uh, from a critical point of view as to the way that texts are interpreted and the way. Um, you know, in relation to their context over time, of course. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, I think, uh, fairly common to take uh, ritual performance as a performance. And so I'm trying to tread this line uh, between performance uh, and a textual study, you know, sort of what happens when we look at a ritual text as a text, uh, because in a lot of ways, uh, not only the ritual uh, text, but actually commentarial literature surrounding this text uh, was taken up as a kind of textual study by monks themselves. So it sort of uh, uh, straddles this line between performance and a kind of more cognitive study of a, of a text. Cool. Now, question always comes down to in the classroom. How do we start? You had quite a, a an interesting 
exercise that you started with. Right. Yeah. So I teach um, fairly regularly here at UCLA. I teach an introduction to Buddhism course, which is, you know, a broad uh, survey course, you know, usually fairly highly enrolled, you know, anywhere between 60 and 100 uh, students. Uh, it's a wow. GE course, which means um, students are required to take it to graduate. So there's a fairly heavy uh, writing component to this course. Uh, one of the the kind of early assignments that I give students is a kind of, um, it's almost a throwaway assignment, right? It's a kind of, a, it's a way to sort of gauge base level writing skills. It's very low stakes. It's not worth very much uh, compared to later kind of research projects. But what it really does, I think, for me anyway, is it unearths a lot of assumptions about Buddhism as a religion in the minds of students. So the assignment actually asks students to take a stance without any prior knowledge of uh, the tradition. This is day one of the course, essentially, or week one, uh, and make an argument for Buddhism as either a religion uh, or a philosophy, right? So this is kind of a, it's kind of a foil for me or kind of a straw man, right? Something to kind of set up uh, assertion, sort of assumptions, pre-existing knowledge, if any, about the tradition, uh, which is then later kind of re either refined or displaced uh, over the weeks as the course uh, goes on. And so, yeah, that's essentially the assignment. It allows students to kind of express uh, whatever they can, if they can, about Buddhism um, as a kind of template of sorts that'll be kind of reworked and uh, reformed as the course uh, goes on in their writing. Yeah, it's an interesting, I, I've done similar ones, but I've never done that exercise focused specifically on Buddhism. The fact that you do is, is interesting because I think you would get different answers depending on which tradition you were asking, I think. Right, absolutely, right. So that's that's the other kind of component, and it's it's meant to be broad, right? It's meant to kind of uh, that's another one of the kind of straw men that I'm setting up for students, right? The course, of course, culminates after a number of weeks, uh, and uh, you know we discuss this issue of kind of multiplicity or plural Buddhisms, right? Uh, that kind of populate uh, uh, the world, and of, of course to sort of set up this assignment as Buddhism in the singular, as if it's a kind of monolithic uh, mm -hmm. tradition, already is a kind of trap for students, right? So they sort of fall in to this idea that there's this kind of uniform practice, right? A uniform kind of doctrine and uniform kind of engagement by adherents across the world, right? This is another thing for me to kind of slowly break down across the course. So uh, yeah, framing it in that way is kind of uh, meaningful and, and sort of utilitarian for me, right? It's something that I can sort of leverage across the weeks. Absolutely. And, and students, they'll go into the classroom. I think they have they're more likely to have ideas about Buddhism going into religion 101 than they are hmm. about, you know, Sikhism or Buddhism seems to be. And th th this is certainly the case in, in the UK context, seems to be the next one that you look at. If you've been raised in <laughs> Christian or post-Christian context, and I don't know how it works with uh, Judaism, you know, but it seems to be the one that the, the teenager will then look at next in their interest in different religions. And so I find that students arrive with ideas about Buddhism already. Absolutely. Uh, I find the same uh, to be the case uh, here in the United States, or at least in uh, Los Angeles. You know, a lot of that information, I think, is coming in from sort of popular culture, right? Buddhism, uh, in, in many ways, has sort of found its place in uh, in sort of mainstream culture and popular culture. You know, we have the Zen of fill in the blank, right? Uh, all of these kind of various transmutations of of the tradition uh, for various purposes. And so students are, you know, exposed to this all the time, whether they they sort of recognize it or, or not. And so 
another exercise I do at the very beginning, you know, day day one is just to kind of poll the class. You know, what is Buddhism? What do you think of when I say the word Buddhism? And of course, you know, uh, the the answers kind of range, but predominantly you see a lot of stuff reflected in that same pop culture, right? A uh, sort of a monk or a mendicant sitting in a robe, doing nothing but meditating all day, giving up possessions, and uh, so on and so forth, right? Not not necessarily incorrect, but it's a fairly uh, it's a fairly uh, kind of categorical view of Buddhism, right, as a kind of monolithic uh, practice. So they do come in with something, <laughs> right? Hmm. Um, and asking uh, students to talk about Buddhism, and I think especially in framing it as a question of, um, you know, religion or philosophy, these kind of questions, this hmm. allows you to recognize um, what you're calling a sort of cultural language, um, a set hmm. of ways of talking about these things that the students um, are bringing into the classroom. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So, you know, when I poll the class and, and certainly in this first writing assignment, which asks them to kind of take a stance on what Buddhism uh, is or what they think it is, you know, inevitably, and this, of course, isn't uh, across every single uh, a student, but predominantly across the class, I see a sort of common language being used in uh, in the classroom and then, of course, in this first assignment. So to talk about or, or to kind of get at what they think is a sort of uh, the kind of ethical aspects of Buddhism, right, prior to their understanding that gets kind of worked and developed across the, the class, um, they'll use words like sin, right? Um, and their kind of conception of Buddhism as a, uh, a kind of quote-unquote godless religion, um, they might use a kind of uh, a term like atheism to describe this. Uh, similarly, you know, in, in their their kind of efforts to get at this idea of rebirth or a kind of cycle of of kind of being reborn back into the world, um, they'll use words like afterlife. Right? There's a there's sort of maybe ten or twelve or fifteen of these terms that seem to come up during this first uh, week or two of uh, of class, and so this to me was very compelling predominantly because it was it seemed to be fairly uniform right across a lot of these responses and so uh during the first few years uh, of teaching i mean just a few short years ago i began teaching and thinking about what the kind of implications are here right what does it mean to think about the sort of set of ideas and ideals and concepts and terms that students bring into the classroom that are kind of uh wielded in trying to define something otherwise foreign to them or unfamiliar to them or uh, something that is ill-defined, uh, uh, at least from day uh, day one. So, um, yeah, cultural language, I mean, there certainly could be a kind of a better term. Uh, certainly, there's probably a theorist out there who's uh, worked through some of this stuff uh, a bit more uh, kind of accurately than I have. But, yeah, a cultural language or a kind of a cultural a location, right, from which they appraise a, a religion that is unfamiliar, something like this. It'll work for our um, purposes today, at least. Yeah, so the, the question that, that you you raised is, uh, talking about what we do with these then in the classroom, mm, right? Um, and you, you set out a few sort of strategies, which I'd, I'd quite like you to sort of uh, describe each of them in turn, um, because it's quite interesting, and and I have a few reflections on some of these as well. Whether we start with that now, or we go a little bit more into the what we're trying to do in the classroom first and foremost, what do you think? Yeah, maybe we could talk a little bit about uh, this first. I mean, just sort of what we do with these sets of terms, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It seemed like it came down to the question really of what we're trying to do mm. in the classroom in this, you know, sort of introductory course. Are we, as the sort of uh, the early sort of anthropologists were doing, are we translating unfamiliar terms into familiar terms? Right, right. 
or are we doing something that is more destabilizing? Um, you know, are we challenging the terms that they're using? I think hmm. it comes down to what it is that we're trying to do. And and I wanted to ask you what you think uh, you're trying to do. If that sounds sure. Better. Sounds more aggressive than I meant to. But. Sure. No, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I mean, I don't want to take a, a kind of a complete uh, a position here, but I would say what I try to do uh, class to class is probably somewhere in between. Uh, those two approaches, right? So, um, you know, I, I was an undergrad once, of course, and uh, have been in classrooms uh, that took the uh, the approach of kind of um, immediately uh, kind of discarding whatever terms or understandings or positions are brought into the classroom and and working to kind of uh, break bad habits, as it were, right? Try to kind of replace these terms with something a bit more in-house or uh, something a bit more accurate or specific to the uh, tradition uh, that's being uh, studied. And I think I think that's fair, but from a kind of practical perspective, uh, and I was one of these students, uh, it can sort of scare them off a bit, right? It can it can yeah. kind of it can be sort of paralyzing mm -hmm. uh, once that uh, sure footing is kind of removed, right, or kind of pulled out from underneath uh, the student. And of course, you know, there may be some educators out there who say, well, we must kind of shock them into this, uh, this kind of mode of critical inquiry, right, shedding uh, a lot of these bad predispositions and habits and replacing them with ones that are uh, that speak more truthfully or accurately to the object under study. I think that's uh, fair. Uh, for me, I, again, I, I, I sort of fall somewhere in between those two uh, poles. So on the one hand, I, I do not by any means want to simply adopt these terms that students bring into the classroom and sort of use them interchangeably, right? That's very kind of dangerous and risky. And I think there's a real kind of disservice to whatever is trying to be uh, uh, done in the classroom for the educator. Uh, I also don't think they should be sort of left at the door uh, either. And so allowing students, uh, at least in the initial stages, to kind of use uh, familiar footing or use familiar language in ways that allow them to, to kind of get at an issue or speak to a concept or describe something, some practice or facet of uh, doctrine, uh, I think can be very, very helpful. And then slowly as the class uh, goes on, you begin to kind of replace, right, or kind of displace those terms with something else. So just to give a kind of brief example, you might have students at the beginning of the course, you know, using left and right, this this term sin, right? Describing it in the context of Buddhism, however, however they sort of deem uh, necessary. And um, slowly, you know, you might either in paper revisions or in the classroom verbally, um, you might begin to kind of introduce a softer term, right? Or a kind of related term like transgression, which I think is more kind of categorical, it's more broad, it's not even necessarily Buddhist, right? Uh, but it is less uh, kind of Judeo-Christian, right? It is sort of a distances itself from that uh, initial position. And then as things even proceed uh, sort of further, you might introduce something a bit more in the realm of Buddhism, something like unwholesome action, right? Or, or an action that sort of accrues karmic retribution. Uh, a bit more kind of technically Buddhist and certainly a bit more accurate. And so, in that way, by introducing introducing these these kind of in between terms like transgression that kind of bridge uh, that initial position to you know what we hope to kind of develop 
uh, as a kind of later position uh, for students, which is really a kind of clear and accurate view of the Buddhist tradition in 10 weeks, <laughs> as best we can in a survey course. You know, uh, there are, are kind of, um, I think, rhetorical strategies uh, in the classroom and, and certainly uh, strategies that can be deployed on paper, you know, revising papers and, and such that, that can really kind of steer students in a more natural way toward proper usage, accurate usage, and, and sort of precise usage of these terms. Sorry to interrupt the episode, but we just wanted to let you know to remind you about our Patreon link. Uh, the Religious Studies Project has always been free since its inception, uh, but we know that there's a great problem in academia with uh, people not being paid for the work that they're expected to do, particularly early career scholars. And we at the RSP want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So you can help if you can spare even £1 a month um, by going to patreon.com slash Project RS and subscribing. We know that these podcasts are very useful for people who are teaching and people in their learning. So if you can help um, either by subscribing there or by making a one-off donation using the PayPal button on our website, it'd be greatly appreciated and will help us keep bringing you this podcast for free and fight against exploitation in academia. But now, back to the episode. The language that is used is so tied up with his histories of, uh, you know, social histories of the use of terms. It can be a very difficult task to upset mm. uh, you know, associations of, say, karma and sin and these kind mm. of ideas. There is a sort of, it's often tied up with calls to decolonize the university and things, which is something I, I have some sympathy with, but I do also question the degree to which the university as we know it, the Western tradition of the university, how far we can actually go with actually not being there to translate one alien data language into a familiar data language. I, th I think there are ways to start doing it, as you say, to find a middle ground, but I do think that we more or less always inevitably end up doing that the same right. um, comparative history of religions has always been yeah it's it's difficult i mean it, ultimately we're in a, a kind of western classroom under the guise of kind of western administration right which which of course falls underneath this broader uh kind of category of sort of kind of western perspective and and if you want to take a critical view of sort of Western dominance, uh, right? And so it's, you're absolutely right. There's a kind of difficulty there in being aware as an educator of where some of this language is coming from, where the, the predispositions of students are coming from, and certainly where our own predispositions are coming from as educators trying to kind of mediate uh, for students. And it becomes a, a kind of real challenge to uh, think that we can uh, uh, kind of solve uh, the problem, right? Or, or kind of completely do away with some of those underlying, uh, as you say, sort of colonial uh, values or, or sort of issues of dominance uh, or uh, uh, invasion and so on and so forth. And I think, you know, you mentioned a, a critical pedagogy at the start, I think someone like Ira Shore, who really is is kind of championing just a basic awareness, right, of this uh, as educators, right, just a kind of awareness of this issue of dominance that kind of bubbles beneath the surface of learning processes and pedagogical processes, I think is really uh, the key here. So while we may not uh, kind of be able to 
save the day, right, in the end, or, or really kind of um, uh, play that role uh, to its full extent, especially in a 10-week survey course, right, where it's very, very difficult to kind of have uh, a kind of uh, long-lasting effect on students uh, in that kind of deep way that I think people like Ira Shore and, and others are kind of speaking to. Uh, a, a kind of basic awareness of this problem, I think, uh, can go a long way for sure. I haven't read Shore's work, so um, that that's a great uh, lead for me to follow up. I'm, I mean, I'm thinking specifically in the way that uh, Russell McCutcheon teaches. There is a there is a deeper issue within the field that no matter what language we use, whether we're sort of successfully translating or we're using our own categories or whatever we are doing there. Mm we are still operating within the Western category of religion. And if we were able to translate those terms um, into their own language, we're still by dint of talking about religion. And it's it's not something that we can escape. I don't think it's part and parcel with the way that the subject is set up. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's the problem with sort of teaching in, in a discipline that's so, uh, I think, uh, acutely defined, right? As much as we want to talk, uh, especially, especially now, about these issues of sort of fluidity, right, and kind of dynamism, transsectarianism, trans-religious dialogue, a lot of these kind of things that tend to sort of blur the lines between this tradition and that tradition, or uh, that sort of gesture toward shared similarities between the two. You're absolutely right. I mean, ultimately, we are teaching within a discipline, through a discipline and kind of by the guidelines of of that discipline, right? Mm. Um, you're absolutely right. I, I think that's a real uh, a kind of challenge as well. I, I think it's a deep challenge, and I think it's it's. I don't know if it's unique to uh, your religious studies, but it's certainly acute in some ways. I can I it seems a bit of a Gordian knot. So I'm surprised you're saying that you position yourself in the middle. I don't know where else we could really, and and that's kind of why I was asking. You know, what is that we're doing in that introductory class, because I'm not entirely sure myself in that introductory class, except personally go the more sort of deconstructive route, I guess. Mm. But then I'm not, I'm not starting with Buddhism. I, I start with new religions usually. And I think that there are some ways in which it's easier. So my aim is not particularly to get people to understand new religions. It's more to try and get them to think anew about their own traditions and what they have taken for granted as being sort of rational, mm. normal or, 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 you know, unexpected. And by showing them people who are very much like them, who do things that they are supposedly crazy or at least stigmatized, you know, that we can, we can start getting them to think about the reasons for their own actions and their own beliefs and things. And, and to sort mm. of break down the category a little bit and start saying, oh, actually, this isn't as uh, straightforward as thing as I thought it was, but I guess coming from uh, from Buddhism is a completely different ballgame. It's difficult, yeah. I mean, you look at a tradition like Buddhism, uh, you know, with a much longer sort of sociocultural history uh, than something like a new religion, right? So uh, there's a there's a kind of I think some time has to be spent at least kind of doing the the, the historical work to sort of flesh that out. Um, students need a, a kind of a, a broader context, right? So uh, when I teach this course, we we begin in India and we go all the way up to the modern West, which in in 10 weeks is just uh, crazy, you, you know, to think that we can really do any kind of service to any of those traditions uh, or sort of sub-traditions that grew out uh, across those regions. And so in a way, uh, I do sometimes feel like a slave to that uh, uh, mode of pedagogy, right? Having to do a lot of this kind of early historical background. And certainly, uh, you know, we spend some time with, uh, with major figures. Uh, and I do my best, certainly, to bring out some of these broader 
uh, uh, kind of critical issues, you know, uh, issues of kind of, you know, what it means to practice, uh, what is a, a practice, uh, what it means to sort of uh, uh, engage uh, with a religion. You know, some of those uh, ideas that students bring into the classroom are uh, immediately sort of deconstructed for them. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, we talk actually at length uh, in my class about uh, a lot of scandals that have uh, occupied uh, the, the Buddhist world, uh, not only in recent times, but in uh, in the past as well. So a lot of this kind of uh, confrontational uh, teaching, right, or, or teaching that that aims to kind of uh, break students of of what might otherwise be a kind of ideal image of Buddhism in their minds when they come into the classroom. A lot of that uh, is at work, but just just the the age of Buddhism, right? It is a, it is a very very old uh, tradition. So uh, there's some sort of responsibility, I think, uh, I have to take there um, in sort of playing the setup, right? Doing the kind of yes. long setup. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk for the the last few minutes then about how we can use this assumption of, of familiar language or a cultural mm. language, however we want to call it, how we can use that to our pedagogical advantage, you know, different strategies that we can use to build a, a language of familiarity we've already talked about, but how we can use it to, to really enhance the student's learning. Yeah, you know, again, I, I think this idea from uh, Shore, who, who really kind of pushes a kind of awareness or at least attention to one's biases and not in a kind of you know, self-critical way, but but in a kind of positive way, right? We're meant to kind of confront these biases, confront our cultural positions or our locations, and I think, in his view, ultimately leverage them in the name of transcending them, uh, at least momentarily, right? Transcending them for 10 weeks in a survey course, <laughs> where we might adopt a more kind of accurate set of positions or set of terms that allow us kind of faithfully to the, to the tradition. In terms of ta uh, tactics, I will just confront this predisposition uh, front and center in the classroom. And so I in a way, my job I've always envisioned as, as a kind of educator is to be a collaborative learner, right, and a collaborative teacher. And so rather than taking this kind of unidirectional approach and, and keeping uh, this issue of predispositions and maybe dominant culture in my mind, I'll simply put it out there for the entire class to kind of wrangle with and deal with. And so once it's out there on the table, we can all together be aware, as Shore says, or be kind of cognizant of our, our own biases. Uh, and that allows us to kind of use them positively, use uh, those biases in ways that uh, help to kind of better either clarify or better define or better utilize terms that are otherwise foreign or, or kind of murky for students. Yeah, I think sort of, um, you know, keeping you know a lot of those sort of institutional biases or cultural biases or religious biases a secret as a teacher is kind of a disservice to students, right? I mean, that sounds to me like, a, you know, one of the things you might even be doing in your, your class in uh, New Religions is sort of building a kind of awareness of habits, right? Or, or a kind of awareness of uh, preconceptions of what it means to be religious or do religious practice or something like this. Right, absolutely. Yeah, I, I often start the class, actually. Um, it used to be, I used to have a block that was in a sort of World Religions 101. And I, and I was basically the six, you had the five world religions, right? And then mm. I was six, I was the other stuff. Right. <laughs> and I, I used to start by ask, you know, asking them, uh, okay, so you've had five religions, have you been told what a religion is? Right, right. And they, they, of course, hadn't been. At any right. Point. I quite often will point out to students, you know, look at if you, if you want to know what hegemony is in mm. terms of religions, what gets counted as a religion, look at the courses you've done and they'll mm. come back to first year and go, all right, yeah, it's the same five things mm. over again. And if you get something else, it's stuck in as an extra, you know, it's right. 
and off and always with a qualifier it's you know it's it's indigenous religions or it's new religions or it's religious movements or you know there's some term that distances it right so so yeah we 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 talked about this in the in the book that I edited with Chris Cotter, actually, you know, we talk, called it sort of subversive pedagogies in terms mm. where you have to work within that particular setup, you know, in, in the university, the world religions and, and these kind of things. Right. And, and, and I was going to just very quick. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, just, yeah, I was just finishing to say you, you can use it to your advantage. The nice thing about sort of this issue is it's not, uh, at least in recent years, hasn't been uh, such a kind of mystery. I mean, there's some scholars out there are actually writing on this issue of, you know, what it means to do religious studies in academia, uh, what it means to try to uh, kind of deinstitutionalize or even in some cases decolonize, uh, as you say, the, the university. I'm thinking of like Tomoko Masazawa. The invention of world religions, right? So she really does a nice job of pointing directly at the at academia, at at the institution itself, in uh, as a kind of put it critically, a kind of culprit, right, in putting together what we now conceive of as quote unquote world religions, right? I mean, I thought of that when you um, <laughs> said, you know, there were the sort of the first five, and then you as the sixth. It seems uh, that this idea of a kind of inclusive, exclusive, you know, grouping uh, model, or sort of this idea that there could be outliers to, you know, a quote-unquote pantheon of religion uh, is not totally disconnected from the work that academics are doing, right? And in a lot of ways, I, I think, you know, again, people like Shore and, and, and others are, are kind of pointing back at instructors and teachers as uh, uh, people who can sort of uh, reorient the model or, or sort of reconceptualize the model as, as sort of not so, you know, categorical or, or exclusive or inclusive. Right, yeah, and, and what Tomoko's point and Russell McCutcheon makes the same point, uh, Tim Fitzgerald makes the same point, hmm. that actually in teaching that way and and presenting these things, in fact, we are, we are constructing that model and that worldview that the students then bring into the classroom. So one thing that's quite interesting, when you, you described the the uh, the exercise, you know, is Buddhism a religion or a philosophy, is that we can use that in a discussion afterwards to ask, well, what does it matter? What's at stake right, right. if we, if we right. say that Buddhism is a, a religion, or if we say it's a philosophy? What what's at stake there? What practical effect does that have? I and mean, you could you could connect the use of philosophy there with the fact that atheism and stuff is coming up there, and gain a real insight there into the way that the term religion is being mobilized in the hmm. view that the students exist in. So you're no longer talking about you know two and a half thousand years. Buddhist tradition and you know several continents or whatever you're talking about the specific way that religion is being mobilized for the students in their own world absolutely I, I mean you know these are the students who will go on to have you know hopefully a lengthy conversation but in reality probably a, a 30 second conversation with their friends you know about uh, Buddhism you know the word comes up or they see something on, on TV or or whatever and you know they might spout off a few lines about how they conceive of the tradition after having taken the class and so you know the stakes are, are there and sort of how we position the tradition in relation to uh, you know the students in their own learning process but also how we position the tradition uh, uh, in relation to the kind of broader categorical and institutional frameworks that I think have have dominated for so long absolutely so it's a very simple example of how we can flip from the students expectations that they're coming into the classroom to be told facts and and very mm. flip it until so now we're talking about how ideas and how knowledge is constructed that's what i think we're there in the classroom to do yeah absolutely yeah it's sort of a, a reflexive approach i think is really really helpful
Absolutely. Um, Matthew Hayes, thanks for coming on the RSP. It's been a really interesting conversation. I'm sorry that we're, we've run out of time. Uh, it's quite all right. Thank you so much, David. I really appreciate it. It's been very enjoyable. Well, um, that esoteric chat at the beginning of the podcast is maybe quite apt for a podcast on um, that stereotypical thing that is definitely, definitely not a religion, Buddhism. Yes, uh, it's a philosophy, as we all know. Yeah, uh, we've got uh, next week's next week's interview is another one by um, Maria Alexeyevskaya. Um, it's with Anna Salonen. Yeah. I hope I've pronounced that yeah. properly. Picking up quite directly from an interview that we did with Michel Desjardins back in the first year, I think, of the RSP, which is on religion and food. So this one takes that sort of maybe more theoretical, methodological podcast and ties it into some sort of like a particular empirical case study looking at food banks and that sort of thing. So, mm. And so. the way that these kind of issues of uh, values and ethics are built into discourses about food and, and waste and the and, rest of it. And good religion and bad religion. <laughs> Indeed. And, and all of that. Indeed. So we look forward to that. That's uh, Maria's... I think it's her second interview for us. I believe so. Yeah. yeah. So she was one of the new interviewers who joined uh, last year, and we'll be making a push for new interviewers, editors, audio people, all sorts of things uh, to join. Uh, we'll probably launch that in a in a week or two's time, but you know, just bear that in mind. It's a great way to bolster your CV in this increasingly competitive job market. Yeah, yeah. As you'll remember from our interview with Russell a couple of weeks ago. See, it's like a sort of finely woven tapestry, an audio tapestry. <laughs> an audio tapestry from a civilization which no longer exists. Who's even saying this? If, they are, if an RSP podcast is dropped online and receives no listeners, does it exist? Thanks for listening, we hope. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson and managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Marek Sullivan and Rebecca Barrett-Fox and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop and video editing by Jonathan Tuckett. Don't forget you can support the project by using our Amazon.com, .co.uk and .ca links or donating at Patreon.com slash Project RS and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals. <laughs>